continuing in our sinking series, uh, which is all about uh, walking by faith and the reality that it's just not easy. Uh, most of you probably haven't walked on water, right? Nobody here? No? No one's accomplished that? So uh, it is a difficult thing. As we pursue Jesus, it's very easy to get our eyes off of him. Question for you this morning. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Um, I think I've asked this question before in the past, but how would somebody who knows you really well describe you? What adjectives would they use? What things would they talk about? They say as they described you as a person. Now, this is a very different question from how would you want somebody to describe you? Uh, try not to think about what you would prefer they focused on. But if somebody, uh, maybe from work, maybe somebody from your family, maybe just a friend that you have, how would they describe you? What things would come out about you? Uh, most of the time, they're going to focus a lot on the things um, that you're interested in or that are very true about you, whether you like that or not. They're going to focus on the things that define you. Uh, when I think about some of the things that people would use to describe me, it a lot of times has to do with, it can describe very easily, what are my priorities? What are the things I value the most? What do I spend most of my time doing? What do I spend most of my time talking about? Like if I were to say to a lot of you, now some of you might not know what this means, but uh, if I were to say to you today, like, you know, I'm really thinking about doing the Daniel fast. Some of you would probably laugh at me because you know that's probably a lie. I'm not going to do the Daniel fast because vegetables are gross and I don't like to eat them. Most of you aren't. Uh, it's not news to you that I don't like eating vegetables. I love meat. Uh, one person, blessed soul, uh, blessed me with a piece of meat this week, and boy, was it a glorious time. Uh, most people know that about me. If people are going to define me, that usually comes out in the description of me because I talk about it a lot. It's one of the things, I, you know, I don't try to hide that at all because I don't want to be blessed with a bag of cauliflower. Um, so, that's a descriptor that somebody would use. But what would they use to describe you? I think about this a lot uh, when I'm at a funeral. I, I, this is just one of the things I focus on. I, I, I listen to the stories that people tell. At a funeral, a lot of people are going to talk a lot about the things that defined that person who passed away. They'll, they'll speak about the things that were important to them, the things they valued, the things um, that became very prominent in that person's life, the thing they spent the most time talking about. Uh, if I was to say, you know, well, one of the things that defines me is, you know, the, I love to be a dad. And then when you see me with my kids, I'm always on my phone or I'm not paying attention to them and they're like hanging from the ceiling by their toes. Like, you're going to think, I don't really think this is as much a priority for you as you think that, that it is. And I think that might be true as we think about what, what, how would my friends define me? How would people that know me really well define me? We may be putting things in there that are kind of our identity wish list, things that we wish people would use to describe us, but they simply aren't there. They're simply not things that we put a lot of priority into, that we put a lot of time, that we invest a lot into. Uh, I, I hope that if somebody who knows me really well would say, one of the things that defines me is I, I do. I love being a dad. It, it, it's something I enjoy very much. Um, took the kids to the trampoline park yesterday over in State College so I can barely move uh, because I stepped on a trampoline. And uh, 
feeling that this morning, but I, I just love. I love hanging out with them. I love doing activities with them. It's just something that I invest time into. Most of you know uh, what is true about all of us is that we're unique. I just always think that's a really fun statement. It's the same about all of you. You're unique. Just doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense. Oxymoron. But each of us is very unique. We each have our own identity. I wouldn't describe any two people in this church the exact same way, even though that you might have a lot of similarities. Um, you may have be a married couple who's been married a very long time, but you still have a very unique identity, things that you're passionate about, things that you enjoy. Each of us also, we don't just have an identity, we also have a source of our identity. It draws from something. If I said one of the things that defines me is I love to be a dad and I don't have any kids, that is strange. Where's the source? Where's the source for that identity? Our identity always has a source. It comes from somewhere. Some people find their identity in their family. Very big. This area of Western Pennsylvania, very true. A lot of people find identity in family. Some find it in their jobs. It's a very big deal. They, they think their job is super important, and that's where they get their identity. Some get it from their hobbies. Around here, hunting, fishing, motorcycles, you know, whatever it is, that, that whatever hobbies you have. Some in their relationships. They're defined by the relationship they're in. Some in their intellect. They like to be the smart person in the room. They like to know it all. They like to be the person that says, actually. Uh, some in their positions of authority. They have titles, whether they're really important titles or not. They, they value those titles. That's what gives them a source of identity. I see this a lot in the church. All these sources for identity have a similar problem, however. They're all temporary. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 18, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, so if you want to follow along in your own copy of God's Word, you can do that, or you can simply look on the screen behind me, and the words will be up there as well. 2 Corinthians four eighteen. so we don't look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. If we tie our identity to the things of this world, it'll be a little awkward one day when we step into heaven. If the only identities we had were the things that will one day perish and, and go away, who are you going to be one day? I, I've seen this happen, not very often, because I'm not quite old enough to see this happen too often, but uh, I've seen it where, uh, and, and you know this thing, we call it empty nesting where a couple who seems to have a healthy marriage and they're doing really well, their kids all go off finally and they become empty nesters and that's when they begin to struggle because their marriage was based more on being parents than being spouses and they begin to struggle. They begin to have some difficulty because they look across the table and there are no kids to distract anymore and they're like, who is this person? I don't really know you because they, they lost a part of the identity that tied them together, and now they have to figure things out all, all fresh and new. It's probably not new information for most of us this morning that we're supposed to find our identity in Christ. Uh, yes, you know, that's true. When I asked you how your friends would define you, a lot of you would probably say, well, they would, they would define me as a Christian. Now, for some of you, that's certainly true, absolutely. It's a huge part of your life. 
For some people who would say that's part of their identity, I don't think there's many people who would use that as an adjective or descriptor uh, for you. If it's not a priority to you, if it doesn't bleed into your work life, your family life, into many areas of your life, it's probably not something somebody would use to describe you. So we know this is true, that we're supposed to find our identity in Christ, yet many of us spend a good bit of time trying to control others' perception of us. If we're honest, a lot of us do this. We spend time and energy every single day trying to control the perception of others have of us. Because if we're honest, we find a large part of our identity in the way others view us. We do things, we act a certain way, we talk a certain way, we engage in certain activities because we want it to change the way people view us. And it matters a lot to us. Uh, Most of you probably wouldn't uh, like it if you knew somebody was really mad at you or somebody really didn't like you. Uh, If you looked across the aisle and you knew that so-and-so really didn't like you, it would probably affect you to some degree. Most of us, we draw identity from the way others view us. Some of us spend far too much time concerned with what others think of us and far too little time concerned with how God sees us. Anybody who struggles with identity, who struggles with uh, self-perception, who struggles with uh, not feeling good enough, that is true. Because if they spent time viewing how God views them, man, that changes everything. If we could see ourselves for just a moment through God's eyes, boy, would that change things. Those of you that are a parent, you know, if your kid could see themselves through your eyes, that would change a lot, wouldn't it? I don't know. I have a four-year-old, so uh, I don't know if you know this about four-year-olds, if you've never had one. Everything they do, you must watch. It's very important that you watch everything. It hasn't even happened if you haven't watched it. Uh, And a lot of times, they're trying to impress. They're trying to impress me, or they're trying to impress Jackie, or they want us to acknowledge, they want us to to say something really cool about what they're doing. Oh, that was awesome, buddy. That was really cool. That was a high jump. Uh, They love that. And some of us have really never lost that. We still look around, and, and we want people to notice us. We want people to see us. Now, one of the awesome things about Dubois Alliance Church is I've seen this church is more full of people who don't want anybody to know what they're doing, uh, and that's really awesome. That's an awesome trait to have. Our people love to serve in the background. They love to serve without getting that pat on the back, and that's extremely awesome. But that goes way deeper than just that. Uh, the way we live our life, are we trying to seek identity from those around us? Are we trying to get something from the way others perceive us? How much time and energy do we spend trying to manipulate the perception of others toward us? I thought about this this week when uh, I had a, I doubt he's watching this because he's preaching himself, but I had a, I had a breakfast meeting with somebody and I had, I never forget like meetings if I have a meeting. I'm really good. I put it on my calendar and if it's on my calendar, I'm really good. For whatever reason, I miss twice now. I forgot to put a meeting on with this guy. And the one time I, took, I totally forgot, he woke me up with a text like, hey man, where are you? I'm like, oh no. Uh, and I feel horrible about that kind of stuff. And so this week I had another meeting and Sure enough, I literally, I just finished my last bite of breakfast, and he texts me, he's like, I got us a table 
and just that panic mode, some of you probably know a little, about, a little bit about, hit me, and I was like, I'm eating a second breakfast, because I cannot tell this guy that I forgot about our meeting again. Uh, and so there's me trying to control the, his perception of me, not tell him, I, I can't tell you that I, I, I forgot our meeting again. Uh, but we all do it. We all try to control the perception of others. So this morning, we're going to take a look at a number of the truths that, about our identity in Christ. And it's going to be a little bit of a different sermon. I'm not, not, like, not going to hit you with like three points and, and all these things. What I'm going to do is I'm going to simply go through the Word of God, and I'm going to state many of the identity statements about you that we find in God's Word, where our identity is meant to be found. See, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy... Now you have received God's mercy. That's true. Some of you, the church, the church community is one of the first places you've ever found a place of belonging, a place of community. And that is a good thing, to find belonging, to find identity. Hey, I go to Dubois Alliance Church. Some of you, like Christian, are wearing a really cool Dubois Alliance shirt. Uh, and you like, to, you like to let people know, hey, this is where I go to church. This is my awesome family that I get to worship with every week. That's not a bad thing to find identity in some of these things. It's when the source of our core identity begins to be found in things of this world. And what I want you to do this morning, for each of us, we have different things that we struggle with. So what I want you to do is I want you to focus especially on the identity statements that you struggle with. If when I state uh, an identity statement this morning and you immediately go, well, that might be true of somebody else, but that's not true of me, I want you to really hone in on that one. If you're a note taker, there's a space for notes in the back of your bulletin. You can write down some of these verses or some of these statements. Those are the ones I want you to spend some time in prayer about because every statement I make this morning is true of you. Whether you know it or not, whether you feel like it or not, it is true of you. If you know Christ, these statements are true of you. Now, if you don't know Jesus... Some of these will be true for you, but others won't. But if you're a believer, if you know Christ is your Savior, every single one of these statements is true. So if you struggle with it or if you disagree with it, this, I'm going to argue that's something God wants to do in your life because he has spoken it over you and you haven't been able to receive it yet. And when we can receive the identity statements that Christ makes about us, Man, it changes a lot of stuff. We stop looking for identity in the things of this world. Most of you, uh, probably, some of you, I don't know. I don't know, most or some. Some number of us, uh, probably before we were married, we tried to to find something in dating and, and all of that. And then we got married and we realized... Man, the whole dating thing, it's, it's nothing compared to this relationship we have now. So we stopped looking for it. We stopped looking for that fix through dating and, and all that stuff, hopefully. When you get married and you find out, man, this relationship is awesome, and so we stop looking. And the same is true of our identity in Christ. Once we find the real thing, once we get to sit and rest and let God's identity, uh, what he speaks over us, really settle into our spirit, we'll stop looking to the world for it. It won't matter nearly as much what our coworkers think of us or what our neighbor thinks of us or, or what this person thinks of us because only thing that'll matter is what Jesus thinks of us. Right? I hope that's true. 
And for each of us, my guess is, I, I'm going to go through this whole list, we're all going to struggle with at least one of these because none of us are perfect. And we're all going to struggle with certain parts of our identity because of things that have happened to us, because of the way that we see ourselves, because of our perception problems. We're going to struggle with certain ones of these. And my, my heart for you this morning is that you would simply be able to see yourself through God's eyes for a moment because each of these statements is true. Let's start. First and foremost, we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What does this mean? Well, this means for those of you that might look in the mirror and not like what you see, you're basically saying to God, you messed up. I don't like what you did. I don't know if you'd ever say that to his face. I bet you wouldn't. But we look in the mirror every morning, and most of us probably see something that we're like, ah, I'm not too sure about that. I'm not too happy with that. One that goes along with that is you are God's masterpiece. Psalm 139, 13. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are God's masterpiece. Man, you want to know if you believe this or not? Go home, look yourself in the mirror and say, you are God's masterpiece. And see if you don't feel weird. If you feel weird, you need to spend some time on this one. If you feel really, really good about it, you might need to spend some time with Jesus too because that that might be vanity. But, But you should be able to look in yourself in the mirror and say, you're God's masterpiece because it's true. Man, if we could only fathom for a second the amount of intricacy that God had to use to create you, You might have been told you're not attractive or you're not pretty or you're too much this or not enough that, but God looks at you and is like, man, did a good job. Look at that. He's happy. You're his masterpiece. There are some, and if you're not familiar with this, there are many of the works of art that we now renown as uh, masterpieces that in their time people are like, that's ugly. I don't know what that is. And it was only like posthumously after the person has died or something that people are like, eh, maybe it's not as quite as ugly as we thought. And now it hangs in a wall protected by glass and you can't even get in without paying absorbent amounts of money just to look at it. So many of us feel like we're not beautiful. We're not this, that, or the other thing. And God says, you are my masterpiece. I saw a great illustration of this one time. Someone took like a $100 bill. And it was crisp and it was fresh. And they asked, how much is this worth? Well, $100, obviously. And so then they took it and they spit on it and they crumpled it and they stepped on the ground and they put some dirt in it and they did all this stuff to it and they picked it up and said, how much is this worth? $100. What happens to it doesn't change its worth. And that's very much true for us. If we could rest in this reality, we are created in God's image. We are God's masterpiece. You might have been through some stuff in life. Some things may have happened to you. You may have engaged in some things. And God says, your worth hasn't changed because it's based on him, not on you, 
not on your works, not on what you have done or what you haven't done. He says, this is your worth. And it is true whether you know it or not. Next statement, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, 14 says, Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous how well I know it. Now I'm kind of a, a little bit of a nerd. Uh, I go to nerd night, um, so I have the title now. Now I'm a nerd. I'm official. But I love to study certain things. I love studying some of these cool anatomy things to see just how intricate the body is. If you've never done any study on like what happens in the womb as a baby is created and like certain parts and like how the, the eyelids are un, initially they're just one piece of skin and then something comes by and it just cuts the eyelid, doesn't touch the eye, but just the eyelid and separates it. So many cool things. The intricacy of something. Most of the time in the world, the more intricate something is, the more value is placed on it. Um, Some of us have really expensive watches that have really valuable parts in them, and some of us have the Timex ones from Walmart, and that's totally good, too, because they're durable and they'll never die. They're just under uh, the longevity of Jesus, uh, some of those Timex watches, but... The amount of intricacy, the parts that some are, some have ruby and diamond in them, and because they're so complex. And yet, that, that's nothing compared to the human body. The ways that God, and you might not be happy with the way your body currently works, uh, whether that's due to age or some other things that could happen in life. And yet, the amount of effort that's gone into that, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And now sometimes we can view God, we, we, we know God is this universal being, we know he's God, and so it's very uh, hard to put it in tangible things. But here's another statement about you. You are known. Psalm 139, 1-5 says, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Later, verse 17 in that, in that chapter says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. And now you might look at things that have happened to you. You might look at your life and say, God doesn't really care about me. That's so not true. God is fully aware of what has happened in your life. He's fully aware. He sees you. He knows you. And his heart has broken over the things that break your heart as well. Because you are so intimately known. It's very easy to say, oh, God doesn't care about me. I'm not important. Maybe you've never been somebody who's important. Maybe you were like me. That's one of the lies I always believed, especially as a kid, that I wasn't important. I was a middle child. I just kind of did my own thing. Nobody even knew if I was home or not. They didn't really care. So I just kind of did my own thing. I I just got this idea that I'm not important. There's nothing valuable about me. I'm not an important person. I don't really matter that much. And God says, no, I know everything about you. The Word of God says he knows every hair on our head are numbered. He knows a lot about us. Bible also says that we are crowned with glory and honor. Psalm 8, 5. Wait, I missed one. Yep, I did. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. We are valuable. I talked about this a little bit. Matthew 29, 30 to 31. 10, 29 to 31. What is the price of two sparrows, one copper coin? 
but not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. As we look at creation, I'm a creation person. I love to sit outside and and look at God's creation, and, and I see how amazing it's made. I mean, I'm, I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't go and sit on a mountaintop and look out at the beauty of God's creation and go, eh, you could have done better. I'm not that vain. My ego's not that big. I have a big head, but not that big. And yet we can do the same things to ourselves. We devalue, we seek to devalue ourselves by the way that we talk about ourselves, the way that we speak about us. Have you ever been rebuked for saying something negative about yourself? I, I, I have. Uh, we view, can view ourselves in a negative light, and God says, eh, how dare you? Take away from the value of something that he considers so valuable. God values us. I already said we're crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8, 5. Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. Now, you might not feel like somebody who deserves a whole lot of honor. You might think of yourself as an unhonorable person. Maybe your occupation, you don't think it's too honorable or whatever. Uh, well, maybe we, find, we shouldn't find our identity in our occupation or uh, how much our home is worth or how clean our home is or some of the other things we try to find our identity in. You're crowned with glory and honor, God says. Another thing that God says is you are worth it. Romans 5, 7 to 8. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And I want to to rest in your mind today because if you're a believer, if you know Jesus, You might believe at some point or another in your Christianity, God doesn't really care about me. Man, I've messed up way too much for God to care. I'm a believer, and look at what I've done. And the Bible tells us, even before you knew him, while you were still a sinner, with all that stuff on your account, God died for you. You were worth it before you said yes to Jesus before he got anything out of it. Because that's the thing about unconditional love is there are no conditions. Whether And so this is one of the things that's true whether you're a Christian or not. You are valued by God. You are worth it to God. Because it's not how much you can do for him. It's not serving in the nursery, even though you should. Uh, that makes you worth it to God. All those things don't make you worth it. There's nothing you can do that's going to make God love you more. Because before you were anything, before you knew him, before you had ever done anything for God, he said, you are worth it, and I'm going to die for you, while we were still sinners. Luke chapter 15, verses 20 to 24. So he returned home to his father. You should know this story. It's the story of the prodigal son. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. This is the prodigal son it's talking about. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Now, if you know this story, you know this son has been a perfect example of what an awesome son should be, right? No. This is the prodigal son. This is the guy who took his inheritance early, ran off, and squandered it all 
did everything he could to disrespect and create problems between him and his father. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And I want to pause here again. Any of you ever said that to God? Ever, any of you ever been so messed up after you knew Jesus that you just kind of sat in that ugh, place and said, you know what, God, I'm, I'm, not even, I'm not even worthy to be a Christian. I can't tell you how many times I'm preparing for a Sunday sermon. I'm like, God, I'm not, I'm not worthy to do this. Who am I to stand up in front of people and talk about you? I'm not worthy of this, man. I'm so messed up. And yet, God says we're worth it. This prodigal son says to his dad, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And man, we can feel like that sometimes. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost. But now he is found, so the party began. And this is a beautiful thing. And this goes for you who might not know Jesus yet, and you who do. When we walk away from God, when we go into our messed up stuff, and we want to be involved in whatever it is, when we turn to God, he is always ready to receive us with open arms. Just like Peter as he walked on the water, and he messed it up bad. But he says, help me, God. And Jesus was right there and immediately pulls him up. Doesn't stand there and condemn him or tell him he should have done better or try to tell him that uh, his walk was not good enough for him. That's the God we serve. And it's such a beautiful thing that all we need to do is turn back, repent, and begin to pursue him. And he is always ready to receive us with open arms unconditionally. A lot of times we think there's a condition. Well, if I just, I'll just get my life right first. I'll just get myself cleaned up. I'll start looking better. I'll, I'll, I'll stop sinning, and then I'll get back into church. Then I'll start pursuing God again. And God says, man, it doesn't, none of that matters. There's an old hymn about coming as you are, and it's still true today. doesn't matter how messed up you are. doesn't matter how messed up you think you are or all the stuff you think is on your account. God says, just come on. Just come. And one of the things that makes that true is the Bible says we are a new creation. 1 Peter 1.3 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. See, if this one was true of you, my hope is that you would wake up every day with great expectation of what God is going to do in your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 also says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. What a blessed verse this is, because for some of us, man, we do not like the person we were before we knew Jesus. We were into some stuff that we don't want remembered, that we don't want to talk about. And what a beautiful thing it is. God says, you are a new creation. There is a whole new you when we receive Christ and we begin to walk in that. Another awesome truth about you is you have been adopted. Ephesians 1.5. 
God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. What a beautiful thing that God himself has adopted us. Now, you might not fully realize what that means. This next statement helps us understand fully what that means. But we are also children and heirs of God. 1 Peter 1.4. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. 1 John 3.2 says, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And Romans 8.16 and 17 says, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So there's this idea that you are a son or a daughter of God. It says we are co-heirs with Christ. And so it's, it's interesting to note that when Jesus is leaving his disciples, he encourages them by helping them understand you are being given authority. You're no longer just people. Just like when my son asks for something, it's different. Um, actually, just this morning, I was sitting in the Sunday school room uh, waiting to see if anybody needed help with the church app, and uh, someone's son came in, and they wanted a kiss. Uh, and I told him I usually keep my kissing of males to my own children, um, so I wouldn't. Um, I don't kiss many kids on the mouth. Uh, not a regular practice of mine. But when my son asks, that's totally different. That's my son. He has certain rights and certain privileges. I don't know if that's a right or privilege, uh, but to kiss me. But uh, when he asks for things, it's just different. There's a, it's a different type of asking. And so Jesus very clearly tells us, you're adopted. You are children and co-heirs with Christ. And so when we approach the Father, it's different. When, when we went through Jesus' model of prayer, what does it start with? Anybody remember what Jesus' model of prayer starts with? Okay, I didn't know if we were asleep. I, I, sometimes I can put people to sleep, so... Our Father. When Jesus gives us a model of how to pray, he starts with two words, our Father. That's how we're supposed to approach God. As children, as co-heirs with Christ. I don't know about you, I didn't have the best earthly father. And so when I view God as Father, many times I, I'm coming walking on eggshells a little bit. Like, I've already got my plan going. I've got, you know, my, my excuses ready. I've got my way to manipulate the, the conversation. And, you know, you know how well that goes with God. But it's because that's the way I view a Father. And we need to change the view. We cannot view God the Father as we do our earthly fathers. But there's, there's a different type of relationship when we view God as our Father. Our prayers change. Our conversations with Him change drastically as we approach Him as, not as just God of the universe and, and this huge cosmic being that has been uh, eternal before anything ever existed. He never had a start to His existence. He never has an end. Sometimes we can view God that way, and so we come and we're like, I don't know what, really what to say. And Jesus says, hey, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. 
So I love that song this morning. I know Melissa and I don't always talk about songs. We did not plan that one out. That was just something that happened. The Father's house. What a beautiful way to look at it. You're not just co-heirs. You're also, you are Christian now. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19 says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual morality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. John fourteen seventeen. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Now this is a totally ludicrous statement for anybody other than God. That he would dwell in us. We are the dwelling place of God. See, before this, God always met in a building. There was this place inside the temple called the Holy of Holies, and God's presence would only manifest in a physical way. One time a year, God's presence would come down. And Jesus told of a totally different system where everything was going to change, and we would be where the presence of God touched earth. We take the presence of God everywhere we go. It's why we're called lights, because we're to go to the darkness, and Christ in us shines in the darkness. If you're a Christian, God says you are dead to sin and alive to Christ, Romans 6, 11. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. We are alive in Christ. We come alive as we come together, but we're also dead to sin. That no longer is an identifying factor for us. Before we were, that's the only option we had. We were being driven by the power of sin. And when we become a Christian, Christ breaks that. We're no longer ruled by sin. But we can be ruled by the Holy Spirit. We can allow the Holy Spirit to lead us. Another awesome statement, one of my uh, favorite verses in the New Testament. We are free. Romans 8, 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Another beautiful verse, because if you're like me and you came to know Christ, and you might have messed up once or twice since then, and it can become very easy, just like the prodigal son, to say, I'm not even worthy to be called your son, God. And then you read a verse like this that says, there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. We don't need to walk around in in shame because of things that have occurred. We do need to repent. We do need to turn to God. We do need to confess our sins one to another but not because of condemnation, but because it's what needs to happen. Those of you who have someone you love, if you know there's something between you, if you know there's a secret, if you know there's some stuff, 
the most loving thing is not to hide it, as the enemy would convince you. It's to bring it out into the open so that you can have a loving relationship again. You can have that freedom of relationship. You are forgiven. What a beautiful thing. First John 1, 7 to 9. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Now, this is one of those ones that maybe if you've been in church a long time, you just kind of gloss over. It doesn't quite have the impact that it might have for somebody who doesn't know Christ. I remember what this was like when I came to know Christ as a teenager and the, the feeling of all of that weight just gone, that feeling of being forgiven, of knowing that the weight of my mistakes, my sin, all that stuff no longer rested on my shoulder. It wasn't my job to be good enough to earn salvation, but that Christ of no payment of my own, of nothing that I could offer, just said, you are forgiven. It's gone. What a beautiful thing. And because of that, if you're a Christian, the Bible says you are saved. Ephesians 2.8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Saved from what? Well, there's only two places to go. Heaven and hell. One, eternal punishment the other eternal glory. So we are saved from the results of our own sin. We were guilty. We sinned. And yet God saved us and brought us to himself. Not only are we saved, but we are also secure. Romans 8, 39. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you need to know that. No sin that you can commit, no uh, amount of messing up or getting it wrong can separate you from the love of God. Now, the enemy will be right on you when you mess up to convince you that sin has separated you from the love of God. Yeah, man, you really messed up. God must not love you anymore. He's mad at you. That's why things are going wrong in your life because God's mad at you because he's a vindictive person, uh, we believe. Man, when when things are going wrong in our life, it's not because God's mad at us. He loves us. He's not just going to vindictively mess our life up until we start getting back and get things right. It's definitely not the picture the New Testament gives us of God, or the, the whole Bible gives us of God. John 10, 28 to 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. Now, some people aren't eternal security type people. I don't know how you get around this verse. Nobody, when we are, once we are in the Father's hand, nobody, nothing can snatch us from God's hand. Once we know Jesus, we will pursue him, and we will mess up. And nothing, none of that can separate us from God's love or take us away from him. You might not know this about yourself, but you are a royal priest. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal 
priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. You are a royal priest. You are chosen by God. What does that mean? That means that each of us, as a royal priest, is sent to tell others, like that verse says. Tell them about your journey from the darkness and into the light. There's so much power in that. So often we're, we're so concerned with uh, telling our testimony, we call it. And one of the things I encourage you to do, it's what I do, is I always ask people, like, just tell me about your life. I don't want to just know the conversion part. I want to know the whole journey. Tell me about the journey God's brought you on because there's so much power in that. Bible also says that you are a conduit of Christ. You bring Christ to this world. Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 1.27. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So here's the beautiful part is, yes, we're sent out. We're sent to tell other people uh, of our journey from darkness to light, but we don't do it on our own strength. It's not up to us. We don't have to be really gifted and skilled in all of this because it's Christ in us who does this work for us. He does it through us. And here's another really cool part is we are a work in progress. You are not perfect. Anybody here perfect? No? We're all still messed up, sinners? We get stuff wrong all the time. Okay, good. Just making sure we didn't think anybody was perfect here. 2 Corinthians 3.18. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. So there's this cool thing where when we come to know Christ, we become this new creation. But there continues to be a renewing. There continues to be this process that God brings us on every single day. We call this a nice fancy word for it is sanctification. But every day we're drawing more and more uh, closer to him or becoming more like him. So you might look at yourself today and say, man, I'm really messed up. Praise the Lord. Don't be so messed up tomorrow. Just keep moving toward Jesus. It's not nearly as important how great you think you are, but that there is always forward motion toward Jesus, that we continue to pursue him. The Bible says that you are uh, a child of light. Ephesians 5.8, For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord, so live as people of the light. Because Christ is in you, You are a light. So now, one of the things you need to do is to go to dark places. Uh, We miss that part in Christianity. We're like, yay, we're a light. Let's all gather together and just be lights together and illuminate absolutely nothing because there's no darkness. And Jesus says, no, go. That was his command. Go. Go to these dark places. Go to where there's darkness because the light in you needs to shine there. And as you go, we are to be people in the world but not of the world. And so we don't participate in those things, but we let our light shine. And and then people look at us and say, there's something weird about you. There's something different about you, your demeanor, the way you talk to people, the way that you act, and I want to know what it is. And you get to tell them all about the light. and It's an awesome thing. 
you are also called. Now, you might be somebody who says, well, I'm a whatever your profession is. I wasn't called to full-time ministry. That's garbage. I, don't even, I hate when people ask me, like, oh, so when did you get the call to full-time ministry? The second I became a Christian, that's when. Because we're all called to full-time ministry. Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. That's not an if statement. That's not a, well, you might be called. You have been called. If you're a Christian, you've been called. And you might want to leave uh, the evangelism to the people like we talked about this morning, people on the other side of the world. But I, I don't know, have you looked around Dubois lately? There's a lot of people that need Jesus here. And you are called. It is your responsibility to take the light to the darkness. And not only are you called, but you are chosen. Ephesians 1.4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. You want something to keep you up while you're laying in bed at night is try to think about how God chose you before he even created the world. That's how love, how much love he had for each and every one of us. So those are just a few of the statements. I had to cut myself off at some point. So just a few of the identity statements you find in Scripture. So you might be wondering, like, yeah, this is really great. I disagreed with most of those, or I struggle with most of those. If you're, if you're honest like me, then you might say, well, I, I, got, I got a lot of work I got to do as I look at that list. Why is it important? Like I said before, it's probably not new information for many of us that that is where our identity is supposed to be found. Yet many of us still seek to find identity in the things of this world. Some of us have had the unfortunate experience to have something we found our identity in taken away, whether that was a relationship, whether that was a job, whether that was a family member. We, took, uh, we found identity in those relationships or in that job or in something, and we had it taken away. And when it happens, it completely devastates us. You've probably known somebody who was completely devastated when a relationship ended, when someone passed away, when, when they lost a job. And many times it's because they found a lot of their identity in that. And so their, their foundation crumbled when they lost that identity. Losing identity is a big thing. It can really mess us up. Not knowing who we are, not knowing what defines us can be an ugly place to be. Colossians 3, 1 to 2 says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Our eyes are not supposed to be here on this world, on this earth, on the things here. It doesn't mean we don't take pride in our work. It doesn't mean that we don't engage in relationships and, and, and pour a lot into our marriages and into our kids and into our parents and into all of these things. But the nice thing is the truths about who you are, the statements that I told you about from the Word of God this morning, they'll never change because they're based on something that never changes. That is God. And so if you find that identity here in this world, you find your identity in Christ, this beautiful thing will happen when you step into heaven one day is your identity doesn't change. 
because it's still found in the same thing that is constant and the same and consistent. That's why it's so vitally important that we find our identity in Christ and not the things of this world. When we feel like, well, that, that's, that this is so important. When you, when you feel like there is so much importance in something that if it was no longer there tomorrow, that it would completely devastate your world, there's a good chance you're finding your identity in that. That you're leaning on that for identity and not Christ. Everything in this world will fail us at some point or another. We all know that. Some of us have experienced that. But everything will fail us. The things of this world also weren't meant to fulfill us. They shouldn't define us, and they shouldn't fulfill us. When we take our eyes off Jesus and we put them on the things of this world, they might feel good for a season, maybe even a long season. We feel really good about our job, about uh, our income, about our intellect, about our relationship, and we feel like this is great. But when we take our eyes off Jesus and we put them on the things of this world, it shouldn't be any surprise to us when we start to sink, just like Peter did when he got his eyes off Jesus. Now, I don't know how long it took, how many steps it took for Peter's, uh, once he got his eyes off of Jesus before he started to sink. You might make it longer than most with your eyes off of Jesus, but at one point or another, we will sink. And so we must find our identity in him We must spend some time with him, resting in these truths about who we are in Christ. We must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus every step of the way. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the statements that were made this morning, the statements you have made in your word about who we are. I thank you. It's not based on our goodness. It's not based on our works. It's not based on how many things we get right or how much we do for you. But it's based on who you are. You simply love us. You died so we could spend eternity with you. These truths do not change based on our circumstances. I thank you. I wasn't too sinful for you that even since becoming a Christian, I haven't been too messed up for you to use, that you still use messed up people and you love us and you continue to draw me and all of us closer to you each and every day as you continue to call us deeper and deeper into your presence. Lord, I pray today we would rest in that. This week, we would rest in that. We would wrestle with the truth of where, I, where our identity lies, and we would make adjustments as necessary. We would ask you to enter some of these things and help us to take our eyes off of these things which we find our identity in and put them solely on you. Lord, I thank you for these truths and what it means that we can rest in this and not feel the anxiety of trying to perform and trying to earn all the time. Thank you that we are just loved. I pray as we go out and as we go to our meal, Lord, that we would enjoy a great time of fellowship and community, knowing that we are loved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a good week, but first, go get some awesome soup, and let's play some fun games. Let's have a great time. See you over there.